You are listening to a White Ridge Baptist Church sermon podcast. It is very true what uh, John has shared that uh, um, as we've watched the last uh, several months uh, continue on in planning and preparing on all the different levels, um, we have seen an increasing unity, a building of consensus. And we do believe that, um, that when God uh, clarifies, he's going to show us the way forward together as a body of believers in fact, I, I've, I've sometimes heard faith defined as this kind of leap into the dark, darkness, just kind of jump, you know, and um, that's the farthest thing from biblical faith, really. Uh, when we see in Scripture uh, faith defined and, and faith uh, lived out by individuals, we see that God always asks people to take steps into the light, not the darkness. So he reveals something of the light of his will, his leading, his his revelation, his next steps. And he says, are you going to trust me or not? You know, take the step. It's into the light. I'm directing you this way. And uh, we feel it, that all along the way, the consensus building, the gathering of, of, of important information, the hearing from all of the flock and the people involved is, is all part and parcel of taking these steps of faith. And uh, Lord willing, by June, we will know more and more what, uh, what God's leading us into for the coming year. Let me lead us in prayer before we look at the word. Let's pray. Gracious God, our Father, we, we thank you so very much for uh, your word and uh, for your, the jealousy you have for your people to love you with your, all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. And uh, Lord, we, we know that you're, you're into building a people and uh, we praise you that you're building us into a spiritual house, a holy temple where you are praised, where more and more people are invited into that kingdom of Jesus Christ that is honoring you, the eternal God. And we thank you as we've sung this morning several different hymns and songs about the incredible good news, the, the focus of our faith, the cross of Jesus, the resurrection the Lord of glory that came and bought our salvation and, and, and cleared a path for us to you and to eternity. We thank you, Lord, that our desire is to make you known that more people would be nurtured in a faith, a living faith in you, O Christ. And so, Father, show us the way forward. Show us if the change of facility is going to be all about your kingdom to come and your will to be done here in White Ridge and in South Winnipeg and, and in the world around us, Lord. Let your glory be made known. Lord, you say in your word, Jesus, that your Father is always at work to this very day and you two are working and we want to see where you're working and we want to join you. We want to step into the light of what you're revealing us for us to do. So, so we, we come to you as a body of believers asking you, God, Continue to reveal your will to us. Give us discerning hearts and ears. Grow us in the ability to not only hear and know your leading, but also to grow in the faith that will respond, not having all the answers up front, but knowing that you're leading. We pray even as we open up the scriptures this morning and look at the life of Saul and David, that our hearts would be inspired, Lord, to see the difference it looks like between walking by faith and walking by sight. So we commit this time to you. Holy Spirit of God, come and speak to our hearts, each one of us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. 
Well, we have been talking about the heart for some time now, ever since we began this series in 1 Samuel, because it is scripture that is central to our understanding of the whole theme is that, that uh, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And it's such an important thing to understand. You know, just in uh, right now, we're, we've put out a, a job description of a director of student ministries. Our, our church has been f- feeling led that we need to minister to that age group of youth and young adults. And, and so we've got posted on our webpage a director of student ministries job description. And, and so much of that has to do with knowledge, experience and skill set. That's a lot of the time what happens is we we put together these uh, requisites and these ideas of what we want. And yet I have been living long enough to know that that I've even seen people throughout ministry years that have had have had head and shoulders above others with knowledge and experience and skill set. And yet somehow they are they are not eligible. They are not ready. In fact, they can be even more dangerous because of knowledge, experience, and skill set if something else is not in place. There are those intangibles, those those X factors about ministry and about life and influence on those around us that we sometimes can't measure, we can't put our finger on. Let me read to you a quote from a a book I read last week, uh, a quote from Paul David Tripp. His uh, book is... um, called Dangerous Calling. He's talking about pastoral ministry. He says, put two men with the exact same training, experience, and skill set next to one another, and it would be easy to conclude that they will respond in similar ways to the push and pull of local ministry. But, he writes, the potential for significant differences in the way they function as pastors is as wide as the catalog of things that can rule a person's heart In ministry. And then he says this very important statement. He says that the heart is the inescapable X factor in ministry. The heart is the inescapable X factor in ministry. You'll notice in the insert in your bulletin, the introduction to our sermon this morning, talking about these two lies by the Holy Spirit's wisdom. When we open up to 1 Samuel, we have this. Two lives side by side for us to study. The life of Saul and the life of David. They're given for our warning and examination, our encouragement. The sun rises on one life and the sun sets on the other life. The favor of God rises on one life and almost the cursing of God, it would appear, rests on the other life. And what is it? About these two lives. Both of them have the same heavenly resources at their disposal. That disposal, Both of them anointed by God to be a king. And yet we see two very different paths. Would you take your Bibles and turn to 1 Samuel and chapter 18. 1 Samuel chapter 18. And let us read verses 1 to 16. And if you are able to stand with me. Join me now on your feet and let's read 1 Samuel beginning in chapter 18, verse 1. And after David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing, gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow and his belt. 
Whatever Saul sent him to do, David did it so successfully that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the people and Saul's officers as well. And when the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and tambourines and lutes. And as they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Well, Saul was very angry about this refrain. It galled him. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully upon Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the harp as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand and he hurled it saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David but had left Saul. And so he went, he sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men. And David led the troops in their campaigns. In everything that he did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. But all of Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. May God bless his word. You may be seated. You know, God designed the entire life of faith to be a journey by which we learn to trust Him. And we can't learn to do that just by reading our Bibles or hearing sermons. Somehow, the the faith lessons that we have to learn, we have to take out of the Scriptures and then live it out where we live our lives. And so it becomes more than just theory. And the key lesson, the, the center of it all, that we need to learn, the thing we need to get about this faith lesson is the simple thing that God is good. Could you say that after me? God is good. good. I'm not going to do the all the time thing, okay? God is good. That's the simple lesson that all faith lessons are, are pointing to. We have to understand that God is good. The scriptures teach us that one of the first things the devil did in the Garden of Eden to dissuade Adam and Eve from obedience was to convince them that God was not good. There was something in the center of the garden that was so good and and he's telling you not to touch it because if you touch it, you're going to become like God and he doesn't want that because he's withholding something from you. He's not really good is what's underneath that. And yet the psalmist says in chapter 84, 11, that no good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. If you know anything about the God of the Bible, the God of Scripture, you need to know that God is good. That God is not about withholding good things. He is about pouring out blessing upon his people. That's what God is all about. He's not about getting something from you. He's more about giving something to you. God is not a taker. God is a giver. And so we we have to learn that. I was talking to a woman not too long ago and she was saying to me that whenever she was a little girl, whenever she would go to the supermarket to grocery shopping with her mother, as soon as they would get the cart, her mother would just stop for a moment, turn to her daughter and she would say to her, now don't ask for anything. That was the that was the, 
the standard practice every time they went to the grocery store. You know, we can take that into our understanding of God. That God is this stingy kind of God that, that sits in heaven and is just, to, He doesn't really want to give His blessing. You know, some of you, if you were to take, play the tape, the recorded version of how God speaks to you on an everyday basis, you might, you might hear God sounding something like this. Now, how are you doing this morning? I know how you did last night. I wasn't very impressed. Did you sin last night? You're sinning today? You're going to sin tomorrow? I know what you're up to, you spoiled brat. You're so selfish, always thinking about yourself. And then you have the gall to come to me and ask for things. What do you think I am, stupid? Does that sound like God to you? You know, I, I know I'm overstating it. But the fact is that if you know the God of Scripture, that's not God. That's not God. Jesus says, how many of you fathers... If your son asks for bread, are going to give him a stone. And then he uses the how much more principle. If you being evil know how to give good things and want to give good things to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit? He wants to bless. God is a God of blessing. That's the way God is. In the Old Testament, eight times. Eight times when the name of God is amplified, when the idea of who God is, is amplified to the nation of Israel. It sounds something like this. I'm taking this one from chapter 34 of Exodus. It says the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God who is slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin, and not leaving the guilty unpunished. I mean, this is the God of, of eternity. This is the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is He at the, at the base of it all? He's good. He's good. So you either, you, either, you either come to that by your own experience and you say, I can trust him. Or you doubt that. And you don't know if you can trust him. And even if God withholds something that you consider is good, you know that he's good and so you realize he's withholding something for a greater good. Well, the reason I share all that is because a fundamental difference between Saul and David is that David knew that God is good. And Saul was not sure. Saul was not sure. He could not see if he could really trust God. David says in Psalm 34, verse 8, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Figure it out in your own experience. Taste it and know it. The Lord is good. So as we look at the Scriptures right now, I'd like to share three things from chapter 18 mostly that are all about how the goodness of God, the favor of God, landed on David's life. And David responded. Let's look at the Scriptures together. The first thing I'd like to say <clears throat> is that we see in the Scriptures the anointing of God on David's life in being wise and, and having success. If you go back to chapter 16, verse 13, we know that David was anointed to be king over Israel. And it says that the Spirit of God came upon David in that passage. And so from that moment on, the favor of God was upon David. And it's interesting because four times, you'll notice it this morning in the reading, four times in chapter 18, the word successful is used. 
the four times in chapter 18, in verse 5, 14, 15, and 30, the idea of success is used. The word sakal in Hebrew actually does not really translate success, but rather behaves wisely. Which is a big difference, isn't it? Behave wisely. We can get off track if we follow this success idea. But if you understand that the reason for David's success was because he behaved wisely. The anointing of God on David's life was because he behaved wisely. Verse 5, whatever Saul sent him to do, David did it successfully. He behaved wisely in it. Verse 14, in everything he had great success. He behaved wisely. Verse 15, when Saul Saul saw how successful, how wise he was, he was afraid. Verse 30, David met with more success. He was he behaved wiser than all of the rest of Saul's officers. And so, whereas Saul's life, as we're seeing it unfold, is, re, is, is accompanied by fear and foolishness and failure, David's life was adorned with wisdom, which resulted in success. David never set out to be successful. Sounds strange to say it that way. He didn't set out to be successful. He never set out to fail. He set out to obey God. He set out to, to keep his compass set on what God would want him to do. It's so clear in many of his psalms that he wrote. Psalm 86 verse 11. It says, David prays. He says, teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. Because David wanted nothing more than a pure devotion to God. He did not get stuck on this success syndrome of those around him. He didn't get caught up in the fame that he started to enjoy. He kept his compass set on God, his true north star. And and he kept that all the way through. All the way through. It'd be easy to misread the scriptures here. And to think that whatever David would set his heart and mind to or hand to, he would be successful. That's a mistake, I want to tell you. Very important to see this. You could almost read the scriptures and say, you know, David could have tried to sell uh, ice to the Inuit and he would have been successful. No, it's not that simple. In fact, when we look at the scripture, every time those four times that the scriptures use that word success or behave wisely... It always is with regards to what he had been anointed to do. It always is with regards to leading Israel into battle against the enemy, especially the Philistines. Okay, we're going to look later on at some of the failures that David had in his life. But it's very important to see that, that, that David's success was around the anointing that God had given David. The calling, the Holy Spirit resting upon him for a certain task. And it said in chapter 8, verse 20, the king would lead Israel, go out before them and fight their battles. That's what David was doing. He was leading Israel, going out, fighting their battles. And it, it emboldened them to follow him because they saw God's wisdom upon him. In Luke chapter 4, verse 18, we read the time in Scripture when Jesus has just been out in the wilderness for 40 days fasting and praying. 
he becomes he comes back into Nazareth, his hometown, and he begins his public ministry with the first day in his synagogue in his hometown. He walks up to the pulpit. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah is given to him. He opens it up to Isaiah chapter 61 and he says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has anointed me to proclaim freedom for the captives. And on and on it goes as he quotes from Isaiah chapter 61. That is what God had anointed Jesus to do when he was on earth. I think that as a church and as individual believers, all of us locate ourselves in the same mission statement that we read in Luke chapter 4 of Jesus when it's quoting Isaiah 61. Now, you might be a certain bent on a certain aspect of it by the by the shape of your gifting and calling and passion and anointing. But every one of us somehow locate ourselves in Luke chapter four, doing exactly what Jesus was anointed by the sovereign Lord to do. You see what what Jesus was declaring that day was he was declaring, I know why the spirit of God has anointed me and what he has given me to do. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is, do we know why the Spirit of God has anointed us? Besides working out our own sanctification between now and the day we die, what is the Spirit of God upon you for? What has He asked you to do? What is He leading you into? This is a very important thing for us to understand. This Scripture somehow... We own it, but more than that, it owns us. This idea of following our anointing by God. It opens up a conversation that is way longer than we can have this morning. I would refer you to the book that some of us are reading in leadership right now. Don Cousins' book, Chapter 9, The Zone of God's Anointing. A book called Leadership, Experiencing Leadership. And in that chapter, he gives a very brief demonstration or indication of what it might look like to have the felt presence and manifestation of God's power upon your life in a way that is supernatural. And he talks about it in terms of finding the zone of your anointing. We talked about it with athletes. Athletes can come off a great game and you can just they say in their interview, well, I just was in the zone tonight. You know, and they don't miss a shot and they make great plays. Well, spiritually speaking, when you're in the zone of God's anointing, you're doing what God's spirit was put upon you, given to you to do. It's what your spiritual gifting looks like. It's what you're passionate about. It's what energizes you when you're doing it. And afterwards, it's where God shows up. And there's God moments. That's what he says. If you have a little assignment that he gives us in chapter 9, he says, if you want to know more about the anointing of God on your life, number one, ask some people around you what you think they think your spiritual gifting is. Where does it lie? Secondly, take a look at what impassions you. What excites you about influencing others, ministry to others, serving around the Lord's kingdom. And then thirdly, take a look back in the last year or two and look seriously at when did something happen to you that would have to be defined as a God moment. 
Because you know that you weren't capable of impacting a life the way that person got impacted or a situation the way that situation was impacted uh, in your own strength. You couldn't do that. And so you say, well, that, that was God. And so you, you, you discern then what, what is it that is anointed moments of that take very little energy often because you're all, always energized by them and God shows up and you're in the zone. God's anointing. It's really important. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel, Paul said. Some of you giftings in service or administration or helps, you say, woe is me if I don't serve, help, administrate, clarify, whatever it is that God has wired you to do. David found his anointing. David, in this scripture, found the zone of God's anointing in his life. It was to do battle against the enemies of Israel And as he led Israel out into battle, God's favor rested on David with wisdom, with favor with his army, and with victory over the enemy. Secondly, we look at the favor of God and the Spirit of God resting on David and resulting in people loving David. It's incredible. David is so loved in this passage. Look at chapter 16, verse 21. Uh, Saul even loves David at the beginning. Chapter 16, verse 21, that kind of changes. Chapter 18, verse 1 and 3, Jonathan, Saul's son, loves David like himself. Chapter 18, verse 16, all of Israel and Judah love David. Chapter 18, verse 20 and 28, Saul's daughter Michael falls in love with David. Chapter 18, verse 22, the king's pleased, but all of the attendants of the king love you, David. I mean, this guy's a love-in. There's nobody loved like David in the Old Testament, we see. And uh, David's radical commitment to God, his fearlessness in the face of the enemy, his courage under pressure was contagious, bolstered the armies of Israel. They had never seen leadership like this. They'd been accompanying Saul on the campaigns. And here was a man of God's own heart that was... Was, was humble, but trusting in God and waiting upon God for direction. And, and he won their hearts. They loved him. And it, they loved him so much that the, the poetry, the, the rhythms, the things of life started to sound forth. And in verse 7 we read that as they return from battle, they hear the women of the town saying, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. And the Bible says in verse 8 that Saul burned with anger. That leads us to our third point. In verse 8 it says that he was so angry. Hebrew word is chara, which means to burn within. Have you ever experienced the blood boiling, stomach turning, ready to explode kind of anger that that Hebrew word is referring to? I want to tell you that I have... That when I still, at times, sense that kind of anger in me, I'll tell you that it is, it is one of the few areas where most of my shame comes from. When I have allowed that anger out of the stomach, into the voice, into the actions... But the thing that's very sad about this scripture is that when we look at Saul, we never get a sense that Saul's anger leads him to shame. 
Instead, what we see in the scriptures is that Saul's anger leads him to jealousy and envy and fear and trying to kill people that are standing in the way. And so we see in chapter 18, verse 8, Saul was angry, burning with anger. Verse 9, he's keeping his jealous eye on David. Verse 10, the evil spirit comes upon him. He tries to kill David. Verse 12, he's afraid of David. Verse 15, he's another, again, afraid of David. In verse 28, he's even more afraid of David. You see what's happening? He's on a slippery slope. David wasn't trying to be obnoxious. He wasn't trying to take the throne prematurely. He wasn't conspiring to get his family against him. He was not looking for trouble. But he was blocking the goal of Saul's pride. And, and so Saul was insecure and he was angry. You know, the, the, the primary indication of Scripture given to us for why Saul was angry was, it says, because the Lord was with David. Verse 12 Verse 14 and verse 28, the Lord's was with David and it just kept on making Saul angry. You know, it's interesting because when when the Lord is with you, you, you know, if Jesus is in you and, and, and is with you, then you're going to be you're going to have the sweetness of Jesus. And that's going to make a ton of people love you just like they love David. But it's going to make a lot of people hate you as well. You're going to stand in the way of the religious establishment like Jesus did during the days of the New Testament or other times. You know, it's interesting because in David's experience of going out to fight Goliath, which we looked at last week, finally when he convinces Saul to let him go, do you remember what Saul's last words were before he sent him out down the valley with the five stones and the little sling? Do you remember his last words? He said, go. And the Lord be with you. You see, now the Lord was with David. But look at Saul's response. What's changed? Nothing's changed. God's with David. The thing that's changed and continues to change for the worse is Saul's heart. You know, you can look at things. What is it that makes you angry? What is it that makes you jealous? What is it that causes you to be afraid of someone? You have to ask yourself the deeper questions of what is it that makes me react the way I do? Because sometimes you're, you're really reacting against God and His purposes being unfolded. So as we conclude, I want to ask the worship team to come and I'm going to ask you a couple of questions as they get ready to come. First of all, do you see that the Lord is with you? That's so important to see that the Lord is with you. Do you see in some fashion where the anointing of God rests upon you? So important to pursue this. Do you see that God is good? That's an important one. Do you see God is good? And if you really are convinced of that, the next time he says, take a step into the light that I'm asking you to do, you're going to take the step because you know God's got something good waiting for you. I'm asking all of you to taste and see that the Lord is good. You know, someone said that, that children are like wet cement. And we, and we, we get that. We, we hear the Ecclesiastes writers say, remember their, your creator in the days of your youth. Now, if you follow that idea of the cement analogy further, what, what are adults like? 
if children are wet cement. You see, the point is, is that does God change people? Yes. Does he change them as children as they're shaped and molded like wet cement? Yes. Well, what does he do with adults who are now hardened cement? You see, a lot of that depends on what we're seeing with Saul and David. What it depends on is, is the differences that, that when we get hardened in a certain way and God wants to change us, it just hurts a little more. Because God has to break up the hard cement and reshape and refashion us. That's what it looks like. And it doesn't feel very good. But as we look at the example that Saul gives us, we recognize that the longer that that cement cures, the harder it gets and the less likely it is to change. May the Lord God, by his spirit, give us the discerning heart to know that that what he receives are soft hearts. Let's worship. Let's stand together. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Thou art the me and try me, Master, today, whiter than snow, Lord, wash me just now, as in thy presence, humbly I bow, have thine own way. Fill with thy spirit till all shall see Christ only always living in me. Have thine own way, have thine own way, Lord, have thine own. Thou art the potter, I am the clay. Mold me and make me after Thy will. While I am waiting, yielded and still. What could, what could be said about David needs to be said about our church as a family.
this fall we're going to make some big decisions. And I'm not worried about the outcome. But my goodness, if God could grip us and just have his way. And our business meeting becomes a revival meeting. My soul would be satisfied. So we're going to sing that, have thine own way, just one verse, but this time we, instead of us. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Thou art the potter. We are the clay. We are the clay. Mold us and make us after thy will. While we are waiting, yielded and still. Oh Lord, as we started the service today, we were reminded that our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That it is finished, and we're to lift up our heads and weep no more. Get caught up in the amazing grace and the sweet sound that saved us. That set us free from our own chains and our own hang-ups and our own character defects. So that we could worship you here. And so I pray. You take us a congregation through this year to the place where you mold us. Maybe for a little while make us like wet cement instead of hard cement. And reshape us. And may each of us be willing to let that happen so we can celebrate your leading, whatever that is. Not just for this year, but for eternity. Amen.